It is estimated that multi-district litigation, or MDL, now makes up around half of all filed federal civil cases. MDLs present significant and complex challenges for businesses. This podcast series, MD Elephant, What's Big in MDL Litigation, explores key aspects of these high-stakes cases and what the future holds in store. I'm Randall Rubenking, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. In today's episode, the only rule of multi-district litigation is, we'll discuss the Federal Rules Advisory Committee's work on Proposed Rule 16.1, the challenges of creating comprehensive MDL rules, and the benefits and shortcomings of the proposed rule. Our guests today are Gil Cateltis, partner and leader of Baker Hostetler's commercial litigation team, and Kyle Cutts, a partner on Baker Hostetler's commercial litigation team. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome to MD Elephant, What's Big in MDL Litigation. It's a podcast about multi-district litigation practice and procedure, um, developments relevant to practitioners, those they represent, maybe even to judges, we, we'll see. Uh, I'm Gil Cateltis, a partner and litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Baker Hostetler, where I chair the firm's commercial litigation practice team. And I'm Kyle Cutts. I'm a partner in the Cleveland office with Baker Hostetler. I'm a class action and appellate litigator. Uh, Gil, before we get started here, let's 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 talk about the elephant in the room, or more, more appropriately, the elephant in our title. How did you land, or how did MD Elephant land on us? Yeah, I, I should start by thanking you. I appreciate you buying into MD Elephant after um, I proposed it. I know you thought, I probably figured it just sounded good. Uh, and I'm not going to deny that, but I have now come up with an origin story or two, um, and I'll, I'll quickly share it. I, the first is there's this famous quote from um, Bishop Desmond Tutu, you know, there's only one way to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. And let's put aside, why would you eat an elephant? That's probably a whole a whole different podcast. Um, but I think this captures, you know, the experience of anyone who has been dropped into multi-district litigation from a new new transferee court um, to the lawyers, to clients. Uh, th- there's just a daunting task of organizing um, sometimes hundreds of actions, litigating what matters uh, and, and, and trying to get matters resolved. So that's that's one way to think about it, right? There's a big, there's a big, as you say, elephant in the room, and we gotta take it a bite at a time. The second one is that that famous parable of the sightless people who encounter an elephant and try to um, describe it, and they each describe it differently, right? The person at the trunk says, an elephant's like a snake, and the, the person at the tusk says, oh, an elephant is is a sharp, deadly killer, and, and so on and so on. Um, and I think that's one of the problems we encounter in trying to, if fix is the right word, um, uh, fix some of the procedural things that arise in multi-district litigation is because everyone has a different subjective experience with it. So Kyle, those are my origin stories. I'm going to stick with one of them to to be decided later. That brings us to um, this episode, which I think is your brainchild. Why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about today? Sure. But before I do that, let me say the fact that you've wrangled me into participating in a podcast called MD Elephant uh, goes to your strengths as an advocate. So uh, so kudos to you for that. But this episode, so the title of this episode is the only rule of multi-district litigation is dot, dot, dot. Now you could fill the whole world with those three little dots. 
maybe the maybe it's the it's the um, Fight Club. The only rule of multi district litigation is we don't talk about multi district litigation. Well, clearly we've broken that rule, so that can't be it. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's the only rule of multi district litigation is there are no rules. But as we'll talk about today, that's not that's not necessarily the case. The whole idea behind the title is it sounds complete, but it's not. After all, to, Multi-district litigation just requires a couple of cases with um, common factual issues uh, emanating from civil actions pending in different federal district courts. If you've got that, and if you can convince the judicial panel of multi-district litigation that your case warrants uh, MDL treatment, then you've got an MDL. Let me interrupt you there for a second, Kyle, because I... I'm sorry, go ahead. I think that's an interesting point. I looked back at what the JPML, the Joint Panel for Multi-District Litigation, heard, I think, a week or so ago um, in deciding, you know, what cases should be consolidated. And the docket just shows how different these matters can be. You, you, there's a data breach action. There's cases about alleged cyber snooping by a retailer, um, a copyright actions involving uh, a pizza ordering app that's very near and dear to my heart, um, the collapse of a cryptocurrency exchange sexual abuse allegations against organizers of national cheerleading competitions, exploding solar panel controllers, allegedly, and personal injury claims um, arising out of um, the use of a thyroid drug. So they're just all over the map. And I think that ex that explains why people come to this with such different uh, viewpoints. That's a, that's a, that list is a great example of kind of how our thinking about multi-district litigation has really changed and evolved over time. This is no longer just the purview of uh, mass tort litigation. You know, almost any any kind and every type of litigation, civil litigation you can imagine, might find its way into an MDL, and that presents a really good example of it. So the challenge becomes, you know, what kind of rulemaking, if any, is appropriate in this sphere? There's no real playbook. You know, the manual on complex litigation. If it isn't already starting to show it is its age is is showing its age a bit. Um, there's a real debate about what rules apply, and consequently, you've got what has become a laboratory for judges, some of some of whom have handled a lot of MDL cases, or some of whom are handling their very first MDL case, um, to experiment, to try out new things, to look at what other courts have done in cases that may or may not be comparable and kind of chart their own course. And so there's there's a sense that once a case enters an MDL, there's a lack of uniform guidance or consistency in, w in which that MDL and how that MDL is treated. And maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, maybe it's too case specific to say. Yeah, you know, I, I think some of this arises out of um, both judges and practitioners who get involved in, in an MDL I think they begin been given a very special job, and then you know, and they have to wrangle uh, a, a massive dispute, massive dispute, or, or collection of disputes that emanated from courts all around the country, um, to be good shepherd for those disputes. You know, resolve what can be resolved, what should be resolved, to help the parties decide um, what's worth pursuing and and not, uh, and then to send what's left back from you know, once they came for, for trial. Um, that special job um, sometimes gets in the way of rules. We've got rules. Uh, and 
oftentimes you don't see um, courts focusing on the rules in the same way that they might in other litigation. Um, you know, the phrase multi-district litigation doesn't appear anywhere in the federal rules of civil procedure, but nor do the rules say multi-district litigation or any litigation is exempt from the, well, that's not true. There's, there's some limited exemptions, but certainly not for multi-district litigation. No, quite the quite the opposite, you know. And I'd point to Rule One first and foremost. Uh, that rule defines the scope and the purpose of the civil rules. It says that the civil rules apply in all civil cases, which of course includes MDLs themselves and the cases consolidated within the MDLs. And Rule One requires that the rules that the civil rules be applied to secure a just and speedy, and yes, even inexpensive resolution of cases. And again. That applies to MDLs as well. Those should be resolved in a just, speedy, and inexpensive way. So I think that provides a firm footing into the civil rules overall and kind of sets the tone for how MDLs should be litigated consistent with every other case out there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, that the sentiment of Rule 1 is also captured in the MDL statute that talks about why we um, organize or have, have tools to try to organize and consolidate um, cases. And, and, you know, Judge Campbell, uh, David Campbell, you might remember, chaired the Federal Rules Advisory Committee, and he famously said there is no MDL exception to Rule 1. Um, in fact, there's no MDL exception to any rules. Uh, but in practice, rules like 16 um, case scheduling and management and 26F initial disclosures aren't consistently applied in multi-district litigation, sometimes because cases have a little bit of a life before they get uh, organized and transferred. Sometimes it's back to this notion that um, uh, judges think they, they can craft new uh, solutions and processes to deal with the organizational challenge they've been given. Um, I guess no, that's got the attention of the advisory committee though. Well, I think, I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly right. And, and, you know, before we start talking about specific MDL rulemaking, let me let me back up just a tiny bit and give a little bit of an overview. So, so the Supreme Court ultimately adopts the federal rules that we have, but it's a long road for the for the court to get there. The starting point is the the Advisory Committee on Civil Rules, which is appointed by the Supreme Court to brainstorm and debate and and propose amendments to the civil rules, including brand new rules. Uh, so the committee is made up of a combination of federal and state judges, uh, representatives from both the plaintiffs and defense bar, as well as professors and academics, attorneys from the federal government. And it proposes these, these rule amendments to the Standing Committee of Rules and Practice and Procedure, which in turn makes recommendations to the Supreme Court, which under the Rules Enabling Act has kind of the final say. And of course, Congress can come in and legislate around that as well. So we've got a situation where over the last decade or two, you know, there's been an explosion in MDL cases in the United States. Um, with this explosion, there's been a call for increased rulemaking around MDLs. Um, and of course, there's so many challenges to rulemaking in this space. Uh, there's different priorities among the plaintiffs and defense bar. Um, there's disagreements about kind of where the emphasis on that rulemaking should be. And second, as we've already talked about, uh, MDL are not the same. And a rule that might make complete sense in one case might make no sense in, the, in another and might cause harm in a third. And so how do you rule make around that? That's a, that's a challenge. 
that the advisory committee on civil rules has has wrestled with for the last five six years um it's the it's the it's the problem they sent out to resolve starting in about 2017 with the creation of a subcommittee dedicated specifically to addressing uh, MDL rulemaking. And so what that subcommittee did, it's, it started by considering amendments um, of all sorts. It received a lot of suggestions about increased interlocutory appellate opportunities or third-party funding of litigation or rulemaking around that or whether master complaints should be filed, and Rule 26 initial disclosure requirements, considering uh, adopting those to MDL rulemaking. And so what they seem to have settled on after considering all those different options is rather a, a new rule, a Rule 16.1, that's specifically addressed to initial case management in the MDL context. Yeah, now, you and I attended the last uh, meeting of this advisory committee where this rule was discussed, and... Um, you know, I have to say it still wasn't a foregone conclusion that there should be a rule at all. You know, we've got, right. uh, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, more than a decade ago, you might remember there was a debate in the Alabama legislature about rules that would have allowed more craft brewing in the state or allowed it at all. Um, and there was a famous moment where one state representative, you know, passionately asked, you know, what's wrong with the beer we got? Um, and I kind of feel the same way here, with, and I, I suspect others do too. What's wrong with the Rule 16 we've got? Why do we need to put a point one in front of it? Um, why can't we just point people to this rule and say, you know, do what the rule says? Well, I think that's that's exactly the problem the advisory committee was wrestling with. You know, one of, one of the things that uh, that comes when you make a rule is is you you've effectively put in a commandment: "Thou shalt" or "Thou must." Um, and this rule proposed the proposed rule 16.1 that the advisory committee uh, voted to adopt and send for publication to the standing committee uh, noticeably is thin on must language. Um, it's, it's, it includes, I would describe it as a series of prompts or guidelines rather than hard and fast rules. And, and let me get into some specifics. It, it prompts that judges and attorneys in a, in a newly filed MDL should, quote, should hold an initial case management conference to develop a management plan for carrying out the MDL. And thereafter, the parties should, again, quote, should uh, prepare a report that, quote, may include uh, the topics or issues identified in Rule 16.1 and any others that the judge uh, wants addressed. I think there was a concerted effort by the committee not to be too proscriptive in how judges and parties must proceed and think about these more as guidelines that, you know, is a, is a one-size-fits-most uh, series of suggestions or criteria that come up in most many MDL-type cases. Yeah, I guess the, the point is we'd like you to discuss these things, see which ones apply, um, and, and, and help you organize um, the case. And in fact, the, the, some components of, the, of this rule envision organizational efforts before there's even um, a first conference with the transferee court and an interim, interim, interim leadership, really, what you could describe to get to get the work done that Rule 16.1 um, envisions. But to me, we keep coming back to something that the Rules Committee's talked about before. Groups like the Sedona Conference have talked about. We need judges 
in all complex litigation, but especially in multi-district litigation, to be active case managers. And we need active case management to start at the very earliest stage and to be supported by parties on both sides of the V trying to roll up their sleeves um, and helping that organizational effort. Otherwise, these cases just um, can go in a lot of unsavory directions. And I think that's what these criteria are designed to get the, th the judge thinking about. Going back to your elephant analogy, there's a lot to get your arms around when you've been handled, handed an MDL, especially if you've never handled one before. And so these, these criteria acts as, act as kind of um, as starting points to think about the challenges that could arise and to set the MDL up for progress and successful, successful progress um, whatever that should look like in any given MDL case. And so let me get a little more specific about these criteria. There are several of them. I think some of the, some of the interesting ones are uh, whether leadership council should be appointed. As you pointed out, uh, this includes both appointed for the purposes of handling this initial case management process and then carrying the case on forward through discovery. Um, the identification of main factual legal issues presented in the case, how that should be done and how that should be communicated to the judge and to the parties, uh, whether consolidated pleading should be used, whether a magistrate or special master should be involved, uh, a proposed discovery plan, and one other that I want to specifically highlight, and I'll quote this one verbatim because I think it's important, uh, how and when, quote, how and when the parties will exchange information about the factual bases for their claims and defenses, uh, end quote. You know, I quoted that one in full because I think there's a ton baked into it. And I think going forward, there's going to be a lot of discussions and opportunities for advocacy around that specific item. Yeah, that that is certainly a hot button issue on both sides of the V. I think um, the plaintiffs feel like uh, this will turn into some vetting gatekeeping function that is um, burdensome, unfair, unnecessary. The defense feels like it's absolutely necessary in some cases to decide who even should fairly be um, in a case and, and have their claims heard. I know this is a subject near and dear to both of us that we're going to talk about um, in our next episode. But that is, to me, uh, the touchy issue and the one that, frankly, has gotten watered down from, I think, where discussions initially started about um, uh, about early exchange of information. That's exactly right. I, I think I think one of the purposes of this criteria is to get the judge and the parties thinking about how can we identify and eliminate frivolous or meritless claims. Now, of course, that should be done first and foremost before the lawsuit is ever ever filed. But as you and I know, that doesn't always happen. And that can become a burden in the MDL, both at the initial filing stage and as the case proceeds along towards whatever resolution it reaches. And so the question that I think that I think the public is going to be asked to weigh in on and that the committee is ultimately going to have to wrestle with is, is this criteria accomplishing it as it accomplishing what it's set out to do? Is it giving the courts enough of a prompt and enough of guidance about how to address these issues? Is it truly addressing the problem? All right. So I, I hope we've whet people's appetite for paying attention to Rule 16.1. I think what's next, um, I think you and I both agree, the Standing Committee uh, is likely to adopt the Advisory Committee's recommendation to publish Rule 16.1 for comment. That is a great uh, what thing for folks to get involved in if they care about this rule. 
Um, you can offer testimony, you can offer written comments, and I expect they will be substantial as they were, um, for example, with the, the last round of changes to Rule 26F. Um, so if, if you care about the rule, please pay attention and, and, um, and get your thoughts in there. Um, why don't we end with the predictions uh, about this rule? Um, I will make, uh, I'll go first. I think this rule will look a lot different after the public comments. And I, I predict, and maybe I should just say hope, that the provisions on mutual exchange of information relevant to claims and defenses will be strengthened. I, I have that hope based on my experience with Rule 26F. Um, I testified at that final Rules Committee hearing. Um, and after that hearing, uh, without any additional comment, the Rules Committee changed um, the proposed rule and, and, and made it the, the proposed final and elevated uh, proportionality to a, a more a prominent place in the rule, which I, th I think was a good thing. Um, but that, that happened because of a groundswell of comments favoring that. So I don't know if you're, you've got a different prediction. No, that, 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 that's, a good, that's a good prediction. Let me, let me agree with you a little bit and disagree with you a little bit. So, I, so where I disagree with you is I think at the end of the day that the overall Rule 16.1 approved by the committee for further review and publication is going to be the Rule 16.1 that makes its way up through the, the standing committee to the Supreme Court. Um, I don't think the, the suggestive, the, the language that uses should is gonna become a must. I think it's gonna remain rather loose. Um, I think many of the criteria are gonna remain the same because I think they are the types of things that courts should be thinking about. Where I agree with you is I think there's gonna be a lot of discussion and debate over the early exchange of information criteria, how that's worded, how that's conveyed. And uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it changes quite a bit, but I think how and whether it changes depends a lot on this upcoming public comment process. All right. Well, we're both on record um, on this issue, and uh, and we'll come back to you soon um, with another discussion focused on on vetting, gatekeeping, whatever word you want to use. The concept, the debate of uh, of how we and whether we should vet claims and defenses um, in any way. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Gil and Kyle. If you have any questions for Gil and Kyle, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit BakerLaw.com.